Turn, your, turn in your Bibles, if you would, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. <clears throat> John chapter 4, this will be part 2 of our series of studying the topic of worship, worship in the Bible. And tonight I want to spend more time thinking through the the essence, what is the essence of worship in the New Testament, what worship looks like, what characterizes true worship, and then looking very practically, uh, the last half of the sermon, looking very practically at some questions, some concerns, or some warnings about worship in the church. Um, honestly, tonight will be more of a Sunday school lesson type, type uh, format, but then um, at the end of this month will be part three of the series that will be more of a biblical exposition of how to, foc- how to keep our worship focused on God, how to keep our focus um, in the right place, our worship on track for the Lord. So that, that's kind of the plan, just to give you a heads up. But if you'd stand with me to to read John chapter 4, if you're able, stand with me. We already read last time, we read the broader context of this passage, and so tonight I'll just jump in in the middle in, in verse 19. As Jesus had met this woman at the well, and talking with her, she brings up what is to her a very important question. Verse 19, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the direction that it gives us in this passage so that we know how to better please you and how to live our lives according to the way that you designed us to to live and to operate in this world that you haven't left us without guidance in that. Lord, I pray that you would help us tonight as we look at this topic to understand uh, from your word how to, how to live in this way to please you. I pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So last time we looked at worship in the Old Testament, and we saw that really God had institutionalized a very rigid, uh, regulated ritualistic type of worship, a localized worship that was, that was to focus in one area. And that area for the Jews, that area was Jerusalem, where the temple was. And of course, there was a debate among the Samaritans, which gave rise to this question that the Samaritan woman is asking, where is the correct place to worship? And in her mind, and in that day, that was a very legitimate question to ask. Where is the right place to worship? And then we saw last time that in, in Jesus' answer to her, we see that what, what is happening here is that Jesus is, is looking at worship, and worship is being deinstitutionalized, you could say, or delocalized, deexternalized. Those ideas of ritual are taken away from worship. And then, of course, we see 
And we saw then that all along God was focused on the heart behind the worship. And the whole thrust now, having stripped away all of those external, ritualistic, localized forms of worship, the whole thrust now for us today in the New Testament as New Testament believers is taken off of those ceremonies, off of those places, and is shifted to what is happening in our heart. Not just on Sunday, not just when we meet here or do our song service here, but in every day, all the time, and in all of life. So worship in all of life is the topic tonight. To, to, to look at the study of worship, we didn't really look at a word study last time. What is exactly what is worship? What is the essence of worship? When we think of this, there are three words that really can sometimes be substituted one for another. That is worship, praise, glorify. We sometimes kind of meld those words, and the Bible uses those words sometimes in parallelism in a synonymous type structure of praise. Praise, there are several Greek words that are, are behind the word praise, but basically praise is the idea of to speak of, of the excellence of a person or subject approval, recognition to express one's admiration for or approval of a person, object, or an event. So it is often used in contexts where recognition or applause is given. And so we praise something. It's usually verbal. We can, we can praise the good aspects of something or talk about the wonderful attributes of whether it be a food or a sports player or obviously our God. We can talk about the wonderful attributes of that person, and that is just praise, talking good about that person, pointing out the positive attributes. But then you also have glorify, and praise and glorify go together. A lot of times um, in Psalms, uh, they're, they're put together. Psalm 50, verse 23 is one example. Whosoever, or Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. So it is, they go together, praise and glorifying. Luke 18, verse 43, it says, and immediately this man, his, he, he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. So this man glorified God. When people saw what happened, when Jesus had healed this man, they praised him. They glorified and they praised. The definition of of, of, pray, of glorify, then, would be to try to influence another person's opinion about another thing so as to enhance the latter's reputation, to make others think bigger and better thoughts about our God. So praise, yes, praise, you could praise a number of things. To glorify something is try to convince another person of the greatness, the wonder, the excellency of the thing about what you're speaking, to, to show God, then, in a biblical sense, to show God as great. When we glorify God, we show God as gr- how great he is, how big he is. Uh, somebody, somebody once made the comparison that, that when we show God as great, we have to realize we're not showing him as great, making him look big, like a telescope makes something, or like a microscope makes something tiny look big. Something tiny and you put a microscope on it and you can look at it and you can examine its parts. But rather as a telescope that takes something that's massive, a massive planet, that to us looks maybe just like a small speck in the sky. 
and you use that telescope, you look at it, and it brings it closer so that you can actually see it in detail, and you can look at it, and you can appreciate its greatness, or at least an aspect of its greatness. And so that's what to glorify God is, is to, to take something that maybe somebody just looks at as a small, not a significant thing in my life, to show them God is glorious, God is great, magnificent, and to try to influence that person to that opinion. So we have praise, and we have glorify, and now we have worship. And really, I'll use a number of different phrases, a number of different words to, to refer to worship, because worship is really, today, is a heart attitude that's hard to encapsulate with just a single word or just a single phrase. A dic- uh, Bible, Bible Greek de- um, a Greek dictionary explains it as to express an attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a higher authority. And it's often translated to worship, to do obeisance, to do reverence to. So it's to show dependence on or submission to a higher authority. This, this idea of deep respect and devotion, adoration, and then it involves a sense of submission and humility. The most common phrase or common verb that is seen with the word worship is to fall down or to bow down. That idea of showing submission, humility, subservience, devotion, adoration. And in the Old Testament, that was almost always a physical thing. They literally fell down on the ground and worshipped. Now today, as a spirit, in a spiritual sense, that should be the, the spiritual attitude of the heart is that we fall down before the Lord. We fall down in submission, humility, devotion, adoration, valuing him above everything else. So the most common phrase that goes with worship is to fall down, to bow down. The second most common phrase is to serve. To serve goes along with worship. Um, Let me see here, 20... Um, 26 times, 26 times in the Bible, you see to serve and worship the Lord. Here we see that idea of submission, humility, subservience. Deuteronomy 8.19, for example, And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day, that ye shall surely perish. He says, if you forget about the Lord thy God, walk after other gods, serve them, and worship them. All these things are four different ways of saying the same thing, a synonymous parallelism here. Uh, Comparing serving and worshiping them, they go together. Luke 4, 8, Jesus answered and said unto unto him, uh, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, or not Peter, sorry, this time it, it was Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So here again, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Comparing these two together, worshiping and serving, that they go hand in hand together here. What it, and so what it looks like to worship something is that worship means conscientiously Knowing and treasuring the supreme value, the supreme worth of God, and then submitting to that, obeying that. The inner essence, then, 
of worship is prizing Christ, cherishing him, treasuring him, and being satisfied in Christ above all else. So worship, how do these come together? How do these interact? Worship, praise, glorify. You know, it is possible to praise something without worshiping it. You can praise, maybe you can admit that another football team is better than your football team. And you're praising them, but you're not happy about that. You're not worshiping them in that. It's possible to read uh, Psalm, 90, Psalm 96. You could go ahead and turn there. Psalm 96 is a great psalm of praise to the Lord and an excellent example of how we can praise the Lord. Psalm 96. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the heavens, all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all the people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And it continues here. But you know it is possible to read this passage maybe early in the morning in your personal time reading the Bible, or even here, in a distracted sense, give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength, give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. And you get to the end and you what did I just read? I, you know, I, I remember it said something, and without the mind engaged, you can say the words of praise without it ever actually touching your heart. You can worship, or you can, it is possible to, praise something, to admit something is good without actually worshiping it. It's all too possible even to go through an entire church service and the whole time thinking about, you know, after church I need to catch brother so-and-so, I need to mention this to him, and then on the way home we need to stop by the store, and then tomorrow, oh, at work, tomorrow's Monday, I sure hope my coworker got that project done on Friday because if not, tomorrow, and the whole time you're thinking about other things, It's very easy to sit here listening to even sing the songs of praise without ever actually truly worshiping from the heart. Because praise should lead to worship, but praise in itself is not worship. Praise should lead to worship. Recognition of God's attributes, then, should lead to a heart of submission, of delight, devotion, adoration, humility before him. As you read these verses, verse 9 of Psalm 96 Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The the world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. As we read these things, that it actually comes in and that we dwell on these things and let our heart rejoice in the truth of who God is, in the truth of of his grandeur. So true worship is to read praises like these and have your heart reply, yes, this is true. This is right. God is wonderful. And my heart's heart's reply then is to, to want to submit to him, to humbly submit to him in respect and devotion, to treasure him as more valuable than anything else in the world. So there really are two parts of of worship. There's this intellectual side 
of understanding with the mind, understanding facts about God. And then there is also the heart's reply to this, the agreement from your heart that, yes, these things are true and these things are part of what I believe about God. Understanding always has to be the foundation of those, those heart feelings, feelings from the heart, or else all that we have is baseless emotionalism without truth. But on the other hand, if all you do is understand things about God, facts about God, we can praise God, we can talk about his, his communicable and non-communicable attributes, his, all of these things, and dissect God as if he were an object to dissect. And if we never let those truths come down to our heart level, all it is is intellectualism, and it's, it's deadness. So true worship, true praise should lead to true worship. Only humans then, and this is interesting, only humans can worship God in truth. Every act of worship in scripture, anytime something worships, it is done by a human. And you say, wow, this is really elementary here. Because worship is a response of the heart. The Bible says, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. It goes on explaining how creation glorifies God. But creation, the heavens, the solar system, microorganisms, they don't worship God. They don't cry out from their heart of how wonderful and glorious God. A tree is a tree. But as we look at a tree, we can glorify God through that. A while back, I made the statement to some younger people that, that anybody can glorify God no matter how old they are. And immediately somebody asked, but what about an infant? Can an infant glorify God? At first, huh. yeah, that's a good question. But yes, an infant can glorify God passively, at least as you look at a little baby and you examine their fingers, their toes, and their eyes, everything about them. And think, wow, how God made this, this person here. And the, the intricacies of all that God has done, even though the baby cannot worship from the heart because they don't understand, they can glorify God. Only humans can conscientiously worship God then. These, uh, these the nature, babies, everything that we see then, glorify God, and that should lead us then to worship God from the heart. So that's an idea of the definition of worship, worship and how that associates or interacts with praise and glory, glorifying God. What are the aspects then of true worship? As we looked here in John 4, 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worshiping in truth, like we said last week, last time, is a response to the truth of who God is based in the reality, the, the truth of scripture. And then worshiping in spirit, it literally means that, that we are carried along by the Holy Spirit to worship down deep in my own being, to worship in my spirit. A spiritual worship, a soulful worship that flows from the heart, who we are. True worship then, number one, is true worship is a heart issue. True worship issues out of the heart. It is a it deals with the heart. This inwardness of the essence of worship is what Jesus talked about in Matthew. You'll remember when he condemned the, 
the hypocrites in Matthew 15, verse 7, said, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. Said they, they say all the right things, they do all the right things, but their heart is far from me. They're not, their heart isn't in it. And then they take the commandments of men and teach them as if those were doctrine. Said this is the heart of the issue is when the heart is not engaged, Worship is vain, empty, useless. It's non-existent. No matter how proper we get all the forms, the external forms, the experience of the heart then is the defining, uh, vital, the, the indispensable aspect of worship. It's a heart issue. And all the outward rituals that we create may be forms of worship, may be intended to worship, but they're not the essence of worship without the heart. Jonathan Edwards wrote something to, to the effect of God is worshiped not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. Not only when we see it, but we rejoice from the heart in the truth of God. Knowing about God then is not enough. That's just praise, but worshiping from the heart, the worship is is a heart issue. Number two, true worship then is an end in itself. True worship is not a means to another goal or a means to another end. True worship of God is the end in itself. Uh, since, since true worship is loving and, evalu- and valuing God above all else, it can't be done as a means to get something else that we want even more, right? Does that make sense? We can't say, I want God. I love God. I want God. I value you more than anything else because it's only by you that I get popularity, wealth, a happy life. No, then that means you are valuing that other thing more more than God. But many times people do use, at least worship in, in quotes, as a means of accomplishing something other than worship. We Oh, we, we're going to have a worship service to bring in the lost and evangelize them. We're going to have a worship service to raise money or to get larger crowds. But if I truly value God, I can't use God as a means to something else. And I'm not denying that that true worship has wonderful side effects, wonderful things that come along with worship. My point is that to the extent that we do worship for ulterior motives, to that extent it ceases to be true worship of God. Keeping love for God, then, at the center of our worship, guards us against that happening. So it is an end in itself. And then true worship extends to all of life. Extends to all of life. Unfortunately, many times we think of, well, you know, yeah, I went to worship service this week. It was about a 25-minute song service at church before the sermon started, and that was our worship. And that, I, I, that should be worship, yes, but that's not the extent of worship. It shouldn't be the extent of worship. The extent of worship should be all of life. As we said last time, in the New Testament, there's an amazing indifference to worship as an outward ritual or outward uh, manifestations like that, and instead focus on worship as an inward experience 
of the heart. And that pervades all of life because it's part of who we are, our heart. If our worship then is a reflection of what we value above everything, it it can't be contained in just a simple song service. So if that is what we value and that's what we treasure or cherish more than anything else is to value Christ, then all of life is worship because either we are expressing what we value or we are in pursuit of of more of that value, of more of that treasure, worshiping God in that way. And this is what it means then when we read in in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul wrote, Wherefore, therefore, or whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Doing something to the glory of God is an expression of worship. No matter when it is, whether ye eat, ye drink, Whatever you are doing, do it to the glory of God. That is exactly the definition of worshiping is from the heart wanting to glorify God with all that I do. Colossians 3.17 whatsoever, whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Same, same focus there. Doing everything in the name of the Lord. Doing everything with a mind, with a heart, for the Lord, valuing Christ more than even my own life. Paul wrote in Philippians, I'll read a few verses there. If you want to turn with me, you may. Philippians 1, verse 18. Philippians 1, 18, Paul expressing the desire and the, the aim of his life. He wrote, what then? Philippians 1, 18. Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice, for I know that, that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And so he says, my goal, my aim, is that Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, whether I'm living or I die, what, even in death. And then verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then the end of verse 23, for, for, to, be with, uh, to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He says, even if I die and go to be with God, that's even far better than to remain here on earth. But no matter which I do, life or death, my goal is that God would be magnified through me. This, I believe, is the, even though he doesn't use the word worship here, he is worshiping here as he looks at everything in life and the most valuable, most worthy thing in his life is the, that God, that Christ, would be magnified. This is the form of worship commanded then in the New Testament. To act in a way that reflects the value of God to do all things as if they are to God. 
And we will eventually display what we value, either the things of God or the things of the world. Our choices in life are an outworking of our heart's desires, what you truly value, what you truly treasure. You know, when, we're, when we talk then about all of life as worship, worshiping at work, worshiping at home, immediately our minds say, well, I don't know that I can worship at work. You know, my coworkers might be upset about just blasting Steve Green eight hours a day, you know, so I just don't know if I can worship at work, but I'll try at home. But no, that's not that kind of worship, the kind of worship that at the workplace, every decision we make, we place the value of Christ above our own. We place that at the, at the crux of the decision-making. And this is true worship. All of life as worship means that every decision we make is influenced by our heart's desires to worship God. And one reason this is so necessary is really that how many things we do that are not premeditated. We just pop a joke, we do something, we say something. Where did that come from? Well, the Bible says, out of the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. That is why we have, must have our hearts renewed and have our hearts focused on the Lord. If our choices then display that we value the things of this world, if the decisions that we make show that the world is important to us, then we are worshiping the world. If our choices display the values of God and that we put that first, we are worshiping God in those decisions. So true worship is all of life. Whether you eat, whether you drink, do all to the glory of God, this is worship. It's a heart issue. It's an end in itself and extends to all of life. And so in just a few minutes here remaining, questions or warnings, wrong views that we can have about worship. So, well, do we still need to come to church? You know, in the Old Testament, they came to the temple. God said, come to the temple. Why do we still need to come to the church now? If worship is internal, I can worship in a deer stand. I can worship while fishing. And you know what? I say, yes, that's right. You can worship in a deer stand. You can worship fishing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sure, do both. That's true. But church services are not solely for the purpose of worship. Church services, yes, we should worship here, just as we should worship at work and at home. But church services are also much more than merely worshiping the Lord. Church is the place where we as believers can exercise our, our gifts that God has given to us to love one another, encourage one another, spur others on to love and good works, serve one another, instruct one another, honor one another, be kind, compassionate to one another. All of these have Bible passages that go with them. That is another aspect of what we do at, at church. And, and God commands us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's for our own health, our spiritual health. And there are so much more besides worship. So yes, it is great to come together to worship the Lord together. You can worship by yourself, but there's also some, another aspect to worshiping with other fellow believers as my heart rises in exultation of the Lord and look over and, and I see brothers and sisters too here that are praising the Lord with us. Says, 
a joint, a, a congregational worship of the Lord strengthens our worship. Another question, well, do we still have rituals today? Like, no, we don't have rituals today. I mean, other than, you know, one song, prayer, two more songs, two congregationals, choir, congregational, offertory, sermon, then stand for scripture, sit, you know, all of these things. Now, rituals, you might call those rituals, might not. They're not bad things. They're not bad at all. They're great, but they're not worship. Okay, even the song services, oh, songs part, they are not worship. They're meant to facilitate worship. I love the word facilitate, at least in, in Portuguese. When we're in Brazil, Portuguese is very clear with this word because the word for easy is facil, F-A-C-I-L, facil. The word facilitate is facilitar. So it simply means easy, something is easy. To facilitar something is to, to make something easy. In English, we could say we pave the way um, to expedite, to assist something, to, to pave the way. So these things that we do, it's not that, oh, it's so ridiculous that we sing a song and then pray and then sing some more songs and then have the choir. No, these things are purposefully put together to bring our hearts and our minds to focus on the Lord, to facilitate worship. Now, that doesn't mean worship always happens. Suppose you do all of these things. Does that mean that worship has happened? Not necessarily. But those things should pave the way for our hearts to respond to the message of the Lord. Say, yes, these things are true. Lord is wonderful. So perhaps you could say that we have rituals. But those things are to, to help us to pave the way for true worship. You might ask, well, what if I'm not feeling it? You know, I, I, I come to church and everybody else is singing and happy and maybe I've just had something happen in my life or I'm distracted. You know, should, is it wrong? There's a question. Is it wrong to sing how great thou art if you're not feeling like it? You know, something happened. You're not, is that, is that hypocritical, pharisaical? And I'd say no, because many times that's exactly what the Lord uses to, to change our heart, to get our hearts to the right place. Our singing also is not only to God, it's to the mutual edification of those around us. Ephesians 5.19 says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There's two aspects. There's speaking to yourselves in these songs and doing it to the Lord. Because in a very real way, we sing to each other. There's a, there's a benefit of encouragement and blessing. We sing songs to the Lord. My Jesus, I love thee. Close to thee, how great thou art. We sing songs to each other. Oh, worship the king. Songs to encourage each other. And so, yes, even if you don't necessarily feel like it, maybe try singing along. Maybe by the end of the service, it'll have lifted your spirits or at least refocused your mind. Looks may be deceiving. I'll, for sake of time, I'll skip the details on that, but it, basically outward actions are not always a very valid measure of true worship. Somebody can look like they're really worshiping and their heart, their mind be somewhere else. Or somebody might look like they're not doing things the way you would do them. That's not how I would do it. But their heart is in the right place. They're, they're serving the Lord. 
Looks may be deceiving. Um, a warning resists the Latin term for you. Ready? The ex opere operato. I love this phrase ever since I learned it. Back uh, since the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church has had this idea of ex opere operato that literally means of the work worked or of the doing done. And it's the idea that no matter, uh, no matter the heart condition of the minister or the recipient, when properly administered, the sacraments will always confer the grace intended in virtue of the right performed. So let me re- reduce that down. Ex opere operato means if you say the right thing, do the right thing, make the right motions, the result will happen. And the story that goes with that just a few years ago, I, I saved this article about Zachary Bozeman, a Catholic priest in Oklahoma, I thought he was validly uh, ordained in 2019. But in August, the Vatican Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued a doctrinal clarification that baptisms are not valid if the, if the minister of the baptism did not say the words correctly. Specifically, if he, did, if he said, I baptize you, and he changed that to, we baptize you, the baptism would be invalid. So he says the wrong words. The Zachary Bozeman then, he went back to his house, watched the video of his baptism when he was a baby, 1992, when he was young, and watching this video, rewound it with horror, realized that the deacon who baptized him said, we baptize you. He went to the church. His, his baptism is invalid. And that means that all the other sacraments that he received are therefore also invalid. His, his reconciliation, holy communion, confirmation, ordination, all of these were not valid. Since his ordination is not valid, that meant that everything he had performed as a priest was also invalid. Masses, confessions, and yes, some marriages that he performed were all invalidated because when the priest who ba- or the deacon who baptized him baptized him, he used the wrong word and that canceled everything. You know, God just can't work through that if you say we baptize you instead of I baptize you. And within days of this discovery, uh, he went, got rebaptized, reconfirmed, reordained, had to start the process over again, and but was quickly reinstated there. So of course we we radically disagree with the Catholic view here. We might even laugh, oh my goodness, can you believe that? But I believe if we're not careful, we can have the same idea about worship here. Of course, there's the radical, say this prayer and you're saved. But even for ourselves here, we can easily slip into this mindset that, you know, if we, if we have the perfect church service, if we come here, we get here on time, we got the right clothes on, we sing the right songs, the fellowship is perfect, the... The music is great. The pastor preaches the perfect three-point sermon, even a poem in there. Everything is great. The invitational hymn is beautifully fitting to the service. Since everything went perfectly according to plan, God must have been worshipped, and we must have been edified, right? This same idea that, well, we did this, we did this, we did this, we did this. So I went to church. I glorified the Lord. I worship today. Well, did you really? Or are you depending on ex opere operato? You'll remember that term. That is, that we have to avoid that mindset of, well, I did the thing. Having done these things, is God worshipped? 
It's an issue of the heart. And then finally, you might say, well, well, I'm just no good at worship. You know, I just, I'll let others do it. Sometimes I think our desire to give God our best or give God the best in church may overemphasize performance and actually inhibit true worship. It's very easy to focus or change our focus from, well, I'm worshiping God with these things to say, I'm worshiping God by the quality of these things that I'm giving the Lord. Is the quality of my singing worthy of the Lord? Are our instrumentalists playing with a quality fitting to the gift that the Lord has given? Is the preaching homiletical masterpiece? And little by little, our focus shifts from truly exalting, worshiping the Lord, to the quality of our performance. And that's why we have to constantly keep in our minds, keep this focused by the fact that God, well, God is the center of worship. God, or true worship is that deep, heartfelt adoration of the Lord, not our performance. John Piper put it like this, he said, we need to have an undistracting excellence. I thought that's a good term. As a church, we should try to do everything, singing, playing instruments, praying, preaching, in such a way that people will not be distracted from the substance by shoddy ministry, nor by excessively professional or manicured performances. We should strive for an undistracting excellence that will not distract from the truth, but will let the truth and majesty of God shine through that these things facilitate worship. So God's desire is for every believer to worship him in spirit, And in truth. And if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 5, I love this passage. I think I've read it last time also, but we'll finish here. With these objections or with these thinking through these things, that yes, worship should be all of life, all the time, a heart attitude for us. In the future, we will all worship God perfectly. And I'm going to read through here again, even though we did last time, Revelation 5, 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and, and people and nation. Here he says, The ransom from every, every tribe, language, people, nation, from all over the world, will worship God. The ransom from all over the world will worship God and has made us unto the God or made us unto our God, kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Verse 11 and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. 10,000 times 10,000 angels, elders, people there worshiping, praising the Lord. Verse verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the sea and, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. 
And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Verse 13, even the animals. So as we said earlier, nature doesn't praise God or glorify God or worship God. But here we see their tongues are loosed. And even the animals from the deepest sea to the skies cry out, blessing and honor and glory and power, praising God. And Christ died so that you and I can join in with these ransom from every kindred and tribe and language and nation, people and nation, the 10,000 times 10,000 angels, even the animals, that we can join in with them. And the call is for us to, to get on board with these and to worship God, loving him, treasuring him, valuing him, humbly submitting to him, worshiping from the heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us in all of life to put you at the forefront, to focus our hearts and our lives on you, treasuring and valuing you and your truth above all else. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, just a couple of announcements. Um, Yes.